the text of the Bible. Some people make a great deal of problem over this. We have the 66 books. They're in the canon. But do we have the text of the books of which we have the title? Both of The matter of the text has been highly controversial over the last century. It still is for some. But I think it must be made clear that the answer to the question, how sure are we that we have the contents of the canonical books, the answer must be very sure indeed. Textual critics spend most of their time looking at very minor matters. Most of the questions they debate have no impact on a translation into English at all. As often as not, it's over a matter of spelling. So that the text of Scripture is uh, very certain indeed. There are two different reasons for it. In terms of the Old Testament text, I would say that the main reason why we're very certain of it is the tremendous care that the Jewish scribes took over the centuries uh, in preserving and in, carry, in handing down copies of Scripture. And our confidence in their abilities has increased in recent years because we have had earlier manuscripts have been found. First of all, uh, 1896, there were found in the Geniza of the synagogue in Cairo manuscripts that dated from before the, the 900 AD. When a Jewish scroll got so worn that it could no longer be used in synagogue service, the Jews buried them. They gave them a burial. But they didn't. They, they, there was a, generally a time period uh, before the manuscripts were buried, uh, and they were put in a certain cupboard in the synagogue known as a, a geniza. And it so happens that when the geniza in the Cairo synagogue was fairly full, it wasn't emptied. For some reason, we don't know why, it wasn't emptied and the manuscripts buried. The door was bricked up. So that a thousand years later, when the door was unbricked, to everybody's surprise, uh, there were these old manuscripts. And they took back the earliest extant manuscript of the Old Testament 500 years. And then, of course, as you know, between 1946 and 1956, there were the finds, uh, Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran, in Palestine, and that brought the manuscript evidence for the Old Testament back a thousand years. And the net effect of both of those discoveries has been a tremendous increase in the respect given to the Old Testament text, even amongst those circles of critical scholars that had previously uh, been voicing considerable doubts. The Jewish uh, scribes used a great many techniques to ensure faithful transmission of the text. They counted, for example, the number of times each letter of the alphabet occurred in each book of the Old Testament. They would work out which was the middle letter of the Pentateuch, which was the middle letter of the Old Testament. Everything that could be counted was counted, and these numerical checks were used to ensure that there weren't words or phrases or letters slipped out of the text that they were carrying on, handing on. So our confidence in the text of the Old Testament is very considerable indeed. The story is different regarding the New Testament. In the early centuries of the New Testament church, there were not uh, the learned scribal schools that the Jews had for uh, transmitting the text. Uh, indeed, many of the early copies of the New Testament seem to have been made by people who were not very learned in that sense. But we can be very certain of the 
text of the New Testament because of the number of manuscripts that have come down. There are approximately 5,000 Greek manuscripts containing all or part of the New Testament. And if in any one of them there has been a slip by a scribe, and there often are, the very number of manuscripts allows us the information to correct the script. Perhaps it's useful to give some comparative and a, com a comparison. It used to be that when schoolboys were learning Latin, and they don't learn Latin, I don't think, anymore, uh, one of the texts that they would be introduced to early on was Caesar's Gallic Wars. These were written 58 to 50 BC, not too far distant from the time the New Testament was written. There are only 10 good manuscripts of Caesar's Gallic Wars extant. And the earliest of those is from around 900 AD. Now that's in comparison with 5,000 manuscripts, many of them quite substantial portions of the New Testament. The oldest New Testament fragment, it's just part of a verse, it's very short, is from the first half of the second century AD, 120, 130. So it's very early, and the number multiplies very rapidly in those early centuries, so that we can be certain by a process of comparison that we are fairly close to the new te original text as written of the New Testament. Now, it's perhaps as well to, to put in a little bit more information there. Knowledge of Greek died out in the Middle Ages in the Western Church. The place it lasted longest in was actually the monasteries of Ireland. They kept copying and using Greek manuscripts down to the 10th, 11th centuries. It died out. Time of the Renaissance, Erasmus brought out his Greek New Testament in 1516, and he used five manuscripts to bring out that Greek New Testament. For the book of Revelation, he had only one 12th century manuscript. And unfortunately, the final leaf had fallen off. So he took the Latin Vulgate and translated the Latin back into Greek to give the Greek of the last few verses of Revelation. And that was incorporated into what's known as the received text. This causes some people some problems, but the authorized version is translated from a very small number of manuscripts. The variations between that and all the others are relatively minor. Sometimes people wonder, but you can see sometimes what's happened. For instance, when Paul's conversion is described in Acts chapter 9 and verse 6, the received text has him saying, says, he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? You'll not find that in the NIV. You'll not find it in nearly all Greek manuscripts. Indeed, as best I can find out, there's only one Greek manuscript has those words in, where the scribe who wrote that manuscript seems to have put them in from memory because the words do occur in Acts 22.10. And they were, frankly, Erasmus put them in. He said, I've included them here. Uh, in a letter, he said, I've included them here uh, because they're in the Latin Vulgate, not because I found them in any Greek text. There's also the, the famous instance of the Johannine comma, as it's called, in 1 John 5, uh, where there are the three witnesses You'll not find the three witnesses in modern translations. And again, Erasmus didn't find them in any Greek manuscript. Didn't have them in the first edition of his Greek New Testament. They, um, <clears throat> they were in the Latin, they were in the Vulgate. And people said to him, you've missed them out. And he said, well, you show me a Greek manuscript that's got them in, and I'll put them into my Greek New Testament. 
So somebody went and wrote a Greek manuscript and showed it to him. <laughs> and he lived up to his pledge. But there's no stronger basis than that. A manuscript, there are now three manuscripts known with it, and all of them seem to be late, perhaps one's 13th century. The one that was shown to him, there's considerable grounds for supposing that it was written to order. Now, there was a time last century when scholars delighted in cutting bits out of the New Testament. On, they found one manuscript with a verse missing. They said, oh, that verse can't be genuine. Let's take it out of the text. Many highly controversial theories were floated. But nowadays, the pendulum swung in the other direction. Uh, a great deal more common sense is being talked. And there is a very... Uh, reasonable attitude and one can be fairly certain that the manuscripts that are being used say in translating the NIV are judged in a reverent fashion to get us as close as we possibly can uh, to the uh, original Greek texts and don't fall into the trap can I just don't fall into the trap of supposing that it's always the case that looking at the Greek text means we're taking things away from the textus receptus, from the authorized version. Sometimes it is the case, that scribes when they were copying were very prone to put in bits from other passages that they were very familiar with. And when they were writing, because they, they weren't normally copying from another manuscript, very often the text was being read out to them and they were taking it down like students in a, a lecture theatre and they very often put in words that they thought ought to have been there because they were used to the passage and hadn't actually been read out. But sometimes there were words missing and one place that I, I particularly feel it's good that the modern translations add the words are in what I, the last verse of Jude. The words through Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus our Lord are even in the Vulgate. They're in all the early Greek manuscripts, but they weren't in the one that Erasmus used, and they were omitted from the ending to Jude, which should be to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, which you don't find in the AV, before all ages, now and forevermore. But it's a matter of a few phrases here and there. For the most part, we can be absolutely confident that the text we have for the New Testament is the text as it was originally written. More controversial, however, is the matter of translating that text. See, it's all very well to get the Hebrew or the Greek straight. You still to get from the Hebrew or the Greek into English. Translation of Scripture is no new thing. And trace it back to Nehemiah 8 and 8, uh, where we're told that they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. So many of the Jews who had come back from the exile in Babylon were no longer speaking Hebrew. They had started to speak a related language, Aramaic. And what was happening there in Nehemiah's day was that the scribes, Ezra and the priests with him were using the Hebrew scriptures and rendering them into Aramaic so that the people could understand them. There were one or two passages in the, the Old Testament actually written in Aramaic. Center part of Daniel, for instance, a verse in Jeremiah, parts of Ezra itself. Uh, Aramaic is very close to Hebrew. Uh, I know a Scottish example. Perhaps it doesn't translate well south of the border. It's like listening to an Aberdonian. Um, I don't know what the English equivalent to that would be. It's Many of the words are the same, but the, the, the accent's different, the vowels are different, but the consonants are the same. If you know one, you can make a fair stab at what's being said in the other. Um, but they are distinct languages. So translation has got a worthy precedent, something that the Reformers emphasized. The scriptures should be in the language of the people. The scriptures uh, should be accessible. It was over against the position of the Roman church in the Middle Ages. The scriptures are the property of the priests and they just give you little gobbets that they want you to have. 
I don't know if you've ever seen the introduction to the authorised version. It's been missed out of... I've never seen it, actually, in a, in a Bible. Uh, the, I know there's the sort of page and a half of a preface, but the translators also wrote uh, a preface to the reader. It's about 16, 18 pages long. And it's a very interesting document. There, in their preface to the reader, they said, Translation it is that openeth the window to let in the light, that breaketh the shell that we may eat the kernel, that putteth aside the curtain that we may look at the holy place, that removeth the cover of the well that we may come by the water, even as Jacob rolled away the stone from the mouth of the well, by means of which the flocks of Laban were watered. And the authorised version translators were defending themselves. They were defending themselves in two counts. The first of them was, why do we need a new translation? Uh, they had to face that problem in their day. And the second one was, why have you put alternative readings in the margin? Surely you know what scripture means. Surely you should just have the one translation. And they said about the second of those matters about um, putting things in the margin, it's better to make doubt of those things that are secret than to strive about those things that are uncertain. Diversity of sense in the margin where the text is not clear must needs do good. Yes, it is necessary. We are persuaded. Translation is never a hundred percent because a language differs from another in nuances of meaning in idiom you can never get a complete transference a one-to-one -one correspondence that doesn't mean that with a translation uh, you're not you don't have the word of God the apostles were very happy using Greek translations of the Old Testament and calling them the Word of God. The substance of the matter can be transferred. The translation can be generally accurate and useful. But sometimes there are things that just you can't get across. And margins are obviously very useful at that point. Did you know that the authorized version was revised? In the version that we normally call the authorized version was modernized in its spelling in the middle of the 18th century. And there were a number of words that uh, changed. If you look back at uh, some of the black letter editions of the 1611 Bible, it's very difficult to read them. And there's quite a number of things in them where the spelling is quite deceptive. The AV translators had to answer the question, What's the need for revisions? Has the church been deceived with the versions we've had before? And they very wisely said that as nothing is begun and perfected at the same time, later thoughts may well be the wiser. Truly, good Christian reader, well, we never thought from the beginning that we should need to make a new translation, nor yet to make of a bad one a good one, but to make a good one better or out of many good ones, one principal good one. Uh, they, they were covering their backs very carefully at that one. <laughs> but it's the same still. Language has moved on. You can't give a 1611 authorized version uh, to an ordinary person nowadays and expect them to relate to it. We need new translations. We need new translations that are faithful uh, to God's word. And in that respect, I would urge you to exercise great caution over translations that are the product of one individual. There were things like the Moffat Bible. Perhaps they're only names nowadays. But there was a while, 1920s, 30s, where there were a lot of Bibles brought out by individual people. Waymouth, Goodspeed, and other names come to mind, drawing them from way back and distant past somewhere. Be very careful about those. They can be useful to consult, but 
one man is always liable to have his weaknesses, his foibles, his pet theory. It is far better to have a version that has been produced by a panel of competent translators. I would also urge you to try and make sure that it's also a panel of translators that are in fact committed to an evangelical doctrine of scripture. Uh, That's a fairly broad requirement. I'm not saying that they've got to be men who subscribe to every particular doctrine that we hold ourselves. We'd end up with individual translations on that basis. But they must be solid, they must be sound on the doctrine of Scripture, that what they are dealing with is God's inspired word, and they must have adopted translation techniques that are in accordance with that basic commitment. It's something that perhaps the ordinary Christian doesn't feel uh, competent to judge on, uh, because it's a, it's a matter of considerable complexity and knowledge to know the languages and to see what's going on. But it is relatively easy to apply a number of tests like, where do these people come from? What backgrounds do they have? What sort of organization is producing the version of Scripture? Uh, I'm not trying to plug any particular version or uh, decry any particular version. They've got various weaknesses, uh, and we could probably spend three hours discussing them all individually. I just want to bring that point before you, that we do need versions, modern translations. We're being untrue to Reformed Protestant thought if we do not see the need constantly to bring to each generation scripture in language that that generation finds uh, speaks to it. Can I now move on? A bit later than I thought I was going to be, but can I move on? I've looked so far at how the Bible has come to us. I now want to go back and look at the earlier matter. How did the biblical authors know what to say? How did they come to write the original documents, what are known as the the autographs, Uh, not signing their name, but autographs written by the writer himself? Because if the original documents are flawed, then the history of the canon and the text and translation really doesn't matter all that much. So we're looking at revelation and we're looking at inspiration. Now, revelations of two sorts. There's general revelation. The knowledge that we can have about God by looking round the realm that he's created. The works of the creator bear the impress of his skill. But the works of creation, general revelation, don't now open up for people a way to come to a knowledge of God apart from Scripture, because sin has corrupted our faculties. The evidence remains, the evidence of the world around us remains, it is largely unimpaired, but man refuses to interpret it, changes the truth of God into a lie, as Paul makes so clear in Romans 1. General revelation can only properly be appreciated through the spectacles of Scripture. And special revelation is what we find in Scripture. Both general and special revelation come from the one God. They harmonize, but they haven't got exactly the same purpose because special revelation is dealing with the situation of a fallen human race, a race whose natural relationship with God has been disrupted and distorted by sin, Creation teaches as many lessons, but creation doesn't teach, cannot teach, of the existence of a mediator for sin. And the fall, obviously, has wrought havoc with man's faculties as well. One special feature, one feature of special revelation we have to recognize is that it's progressive. 
When God came to Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day, he didn't immediately present to them the truth of the rest of Scripture. He didn't give them a complete outline of what he was going to do over succeeding centuries. There was much that remained hidden. And over the years, God progressively revealed his purpose until the revelation reached its climax in the work of Christ and the apostolic commentary on it. It's progressive, cumulative. There's no contradiction or backtracking. It wasn't as if after a couple of hundred years, God had to say, now, forget that bit. It wasn't quite right. Let's go back and put it another way. But we're to think of it rather as light coming onto a dark landscape. Light of dawn breaking over a landscape that's dark with night. When dawn comes, you first of all see the blur of objects here and there. You see the general outline. And as the sun gets higher and the light increases, you can see things in ever-increasing detail. Same things, but greater detail of them. It's the same with the progressive revelation of Scripture. It's not over a different scene. It's not as if things have to be changed around because God got it wrong at some point. There is an ever-increasing light until we see things in the full vista of Jesus Christ. So there was this historic process this ongoing divine activity, not continuous in the sense that every year got its particular quota of revelation. The the revelation was epochal. It came at particular times associated perhaps with, with Moses, with David, with the prophets. There were major steps taken towards the light so that the dawn analogy perhaps isn't falls down at that point. It's not as continuous as the coming of daybreak, But it's the same sort of process. Revelation went on over time. But God didn't just speak his truth. He also directed that a record of it be made. And the word that has been customarily used in the church for that is that that record was inspired. An influence of the Holy Spirit on the minds of certain select men. And in these days, one has to be careful when one says men, but I'm prepared to go for men in its sexist sense at that point. I was reading a commentary the other day, and it it threw me. I can't remember. Was it Psalm 111 that was commenting on? It talked about what the psalmist was trying to express. And then the psalmist became, she goes on to say, and then she expresses her view. And I can't deny it. It might have been possible. It wasn't listed as a psalm of David, but um, I'm prepared still to say that the Holy Spirit came to certain select men, which rendered them the organs of God for the purpose of writing down his mind and will. The the, the writings of Scripture were given a divine trustworthiness. It's often been called the, the concursive theory of inspiration. God so controlled and supervised the human writers that although what they wrote was their own, their own words, their own idiom, they were nevertheless writing down in the very words precisely what God wanted. Because God didn't have to, as it were, look round and say, oh, who can I find here that would make a good job of writing down this revelation? God knew beforehand who was going to come. God raised up those uh, to whom he would allot this task. Prophecy never had its origin, as Peter says, in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The the, the picture that seems to be there is of a sailing ship with its uh, sails unfurled, blown, moved along uh, by the wind of the Spirit. So Scripture didn't come to be written down because man thought it would be a nice thing to do. It didn't have its contents because 
of human investigation into the nature of things. Its source is God, written indeed by man, but because of what God had said to them, God had led them to look for, and they were moved along, guided, directed by the Holy Spirit. Plenary inspiration. The Spirit didn't just work in bits. The Spirit came to all that was written and extends to the, the very words. Now, in the case of a prophet, it's fairly, relatively easy because the prophet both received revelation and is responsible for having it recorded. All scripture is inspired, but strictly speaking, not all scripture is revelation, in the sense that not all scripture is a message of truth directly given by God. If you look at the Old Testament book of Kings, for instance, whoever wrote that didn't claim God's revealed this to me. They said, we've looked at the annals of the kings of Israel and Judah. It's the same thing that Luke says when he begins his gospel. Uh, he says, many have undertaken to drop an account of the things that have been fulfilled. I've carefully investigated everything from the beginning, and I'm writing an orderly account for you, Theophilus. In those cases, the writers were guided by the Holy Spirit so that when they selected from material that was already in existence, they selected and incorporated into their works only that which was which God wanted incorporated, only that which was true. In the same way, uh, if it's, um, say, a psalm, recording of religious experience, God caused the person, David, for the more part, to be the one who had the meditative tendencies, the religious insight, the religious sensibilities that were just right for getting that particular message recorded. In the same way as Paul, particularly amongst the apostles, was just the right person with the mental acuteness and reasoning powers that were required to express the truth that God wanted expressed. And God's Spirit came and directed and guided these people so that what they produced was accurate, reliable, and true. A message from God that they would never have been able to record unaided. The Bible in its entirety is the word of God. And that's really what Paul was saying in the passage we heard read earlier. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's the AV. All scriptures God breathed, the NIV. Do notice there are some people there who, who want to translate it every scripture. That's not a big problem. Much can be said either way. But the, the translation problem is whether you put in the word is. Some people want to argue it's every inspired scripture is given by God. Which is quite a different thought from every scripture is God-breathed, or all scripture is God-breathed. This is something that's true of each and every part of scripture. Paul wasn't saying that the books of the Bible were written, and then God came along and gave them a stamp of approval. It's not saying that they're inspired in the sense that we talk of modern literatures, or later literatures being inspired, I withdraw from calling modern literature inspired. Um, there are poets who have been talked of as inspired in the sense that uh, they've had a great facility with words and a, an insight into things and expressed them in such a way uh, that uh, one perceives more of the, the truth of things uh, through the way they've acted. That's not what inspiration is about. Paul doesn't say in effect, the scriptures were inspired in the modern sense, breathed into by God. The word that's translated God breathed has the idea breathed out by God. 
this quality is a quality of the scriptures, not of the person who wrote them. We tend, very much we're talking of the Bible was inspired, we tend to think of the writers of scripture as inspired by the Holy Spirit. But when Paul's saying all scripture is God-breathed, the human author is, is fades into the background at that point. And the stress is on the fact that it comes out from God in the same way as we breathe out uh, when we're speaking. God, in a very real sense, has authored them so that we can say whatever is written in Scripture is what God is saying. And that's why Paul goes on to emphasize that they're the prized possession of the man of God. And I was very glad we read that passage in Second Timothy because very often we take that phrase, all scriptures God breathed, because it proves a point that we want proved, and forget that it's embedded in, in a passage. A passage where Paul said the holy scriptures are able to make you wise to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. A passage where Paul goes on to say scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. The Bible is given by God in this particular way because it's God's own manifesto of his program of salvation. We should never lose sight of that because the reasoning why God did it this way is so that there would be not just an authoritative word from God, but an authoritative word regarding the way of salvation from God. It is a divine commentary on God's act of salvation, part of his redemptive work, because what he did needs interpretation, and the interpretations used by the Holy Spirit to address us and challenge us and change our attitudes so that it becomes not just a commentary on, but a spirit-used means of conveying truth and changing lives. Perhaps I could just mention two minor negatives before we pass on. When a person was inspired, it didn't necessarily mean that they were sanctified. There are those who have been given revelation by God, who were like Balaam, uh, the, the, old the heathen prophet, who were not themselves committed to the truth that had been revealed to them. And inspiration doesn't require omniscience. The writer of Scripture didn't have to know all about what he was writing. Inerrancy doesn't require Scripture to tell us all about every subject. What we're saying is that this is what God has revealed and that therefore oh, what he has revealed in this way is true, reliable, and accurate. But as you know, there are many, even within the evangelical community nowadays, who argue for something less than full inspiration. The traditional position, and that's the position that was widely agreed right across the church until about a century and a half ago, was that the very words of Scripture reflected the message that God wished conveyed. Nowadays, there are those who will say the Bible's inspired, but they mean something like conceptual inspiration. The writers were told general truths. Yes, things were revealed to them by God, but then they were left up to their own devices as to how to express it in their own way. And that's one of the major challenges uh, that, that are before us. How is it that we face up to a variety of views on inspiration? So that words that we have become uh, used to have been creatively redefined so that they no longer mean quite what we thought they used to mean. Because of that, the, the word inerrancy has become more common in recent evangelical writings. It's not because we feel a new word's needed uh, in and of itself, 
it's because the words we had been using, like inspired and infallible, had become redefined by others, and we wanted a word that said precisely what we wanted it to mean, that the word of God is fully and verbally inspired and therefore true. You see, some people say, can't you go on using infallibility? And you say to them, yes, but what do you mean by infallibility? And I've got one uh, definition of infallibility. Uh, I didn't want to mention names, but I'm going to mention names just now because I think it's useful. It's a definition that was put forward by Howard Marshall, a professor in Aberdeen, recognized sort of evangelical. His definition is that infallibility means that the scriptures are entirely trustworthy for the purpose for which they're given. Entirely trustworthy for the purpose for which they're given. Now, I'd be quite happy if he just said it meant scriptures entirely trustworthy. So far, we're in agreement. But what door are you opening when you add for the purpose for which they're given. Now, often that's used to say, well, Scripture's given to be a record of salvation. Isn't that what I've just been saying in 2 Timothy 3? Uh, that Paul's emphasizing, Scripture's been breathed out by God, uh, Scripture makes you wise unto salvation, and is the means of teaching, correcting, rebuking so that the man of God's thoroughly equipped for every good work. Scripture's given for the purpose of bringing to a knowledge of saving truth and for working out saving truth in lives. But then people make a, take advantage of that and say, yes, well, therefore, if Scripture tells us something about history or Scripture tells us something about the external world, uh, perhaps that's not the purpose for which it was given. And therefore we can have an infallible scripture, uh, but we don't need to worry about these other features. The matter in evangelical circles is often argued on the basis that scripture is only inspired in matters pertaining to salvation, that that's what God intended to affirm. And God didn't engage in dialogue about secondary matters, that were the accepted beliefs of the day, even though those beliefs were wrong. The matter of getting across the message of salvation was so important uh, that Scripture doesn't sidetrack uh, to deal with other wrong ideas. Uh, that would have taken the tension away from the, the main thrust of the message. And so the point is often made nowadays. In evangelical circles, well, evangelicals in quotes if you want, there's no need to be bothered about defending the Bible as regards history or over against science. If later advances in knowledge show that there are statements that are culturally restricted in one way or another, that doesn't matter, as long as the basic position, the salvation truths, are sound. That ends up in the rather paradoxical situation that whenever you can test the Bible against something, information that's independently available, history or science, you say, oh, it could be wrong. But whenever you're dealing with something that you can't test empirically, salvation, oh, it must be right. And I don't think that does a lot when it comes to commending the truth of Scripture to the outsider. It's often supported by the argument that if you're using human writers, you're obviously going to get error. Spoken of in terms of divine accommodation. If the infinite God is to communicate with finite people, quite apart from sinful creatures, he has to accommodate himself, condescend to our capacity. And that point was emphasized often by Reformed writers. They said, yes, God, Scripture uses human words, human concepts, human style. 
And often discussing the revelation of John, they often would say also uh, human grammatical inaccuracies. But the reformers in no way implied that God's accommodating himself meant that truth was sacrificed or that scriptural authority was undermined. But it's almost axiomatic nowadays when you talk about the divine accommodation in scripture that you're saying errors creeped in that way. Nothing's more human than to err. And therefore to do justice to the true humanness of scripture, we have to allow for the possibility of error. I think that argument's fatally flawed, but it's caused a lot of problems. Firstly, if there is error in Scripture because it's been written through human authors, how can you confine that error just to the historical and the scientific bits and keep it away from the salvation aspects? Scripture comes as a package. There is a unity in the message. It's not that chapter 1 is history and chapter 2 is science and chapter 3 is salvation. They're all bound together. And if you're saying that because God has been pleased to use human authors, therefore anything that they've had something to do with is going to be contaminated by human, in, human frailty, human finiteness, and human sin, then you're not left with a sure message of salvation, which is what the evangelical authors are, are certainly arguing for. There are those, of course, who accept the argument, say, yes, you're not left with anything. Uh, but that's another matter altogether. It is a very dangerous argument for an evangelical who says, I want to preserve the doctrine of the atonement. I want to preserve the doctrine of the human nature, human divine being of Christ, to say, I don't, however, need a full doctrine of Scripture because you can't contain the error. If you're going to say that because it's used human authors and therefore error may have crept in, you can't contain it within the nice, neat little bit that you want. And there's another argument as well. And it's an argument that's often very useful in various ways in scripture but just now I want just to use it in this way it's the argument from the analogy of Christ if you're saying if something is human and you want to do justice to the humanness of the Bible authors and therefore you have to allow for the possibility of error in what they've done are you not undermining the true humanness of Christ? If you are saying true humanness necessarily involves the possibility of error. You see the analogy. They're wanting to say God used human beings to write scripture in the first place. And therefore, because human beings err and sin, we must at least at a theoretical level and in practice more widely, uh, allow for the possibility of error. It's not, the argument doesn't square up with the reality of Jesus Christ, truly human and yet without sin. And the point that I'm making is that the traditional doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture is saying that Scripture in some ways can be understood analogously with Christ. Yes, there is a humanness to it. No denying that these people actually wrote scripture. Not that they, 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 God didn't treat them as word processors. He didn't, it was not a dictation theory of scripture. They, they, they were there, they used their words, they used their human faculties, they used their human resources. But at the same time, God was so working by his spirit to overrule the very real possibility of error creeping in. But that didn't deprive them of their humanity. In the same way as Christ is truly human and at the same time is without sin. 
I think both of these arguments are, are arguments that can be used and should be used when dealing with those who say, I can be an evangelical, and yet I don't need to be committed to the plenary, the full inspiration of Scripture. The third argument, briefly, is, of course, that not being committed to the full inspiration of Scripture contrasts with Jesus' own attitude. There can be no doubt from the New Testament records that Christ viewed the Old Testament as totally trustworthy. And he did so at those very points that make modern quasi-evangelicals uncomfortable. Jesus will talk about the historicity of Jonah and the great fish. He'll talk about the destruction of almost all mankind in the flood in the time of Noah. He'll talk about the miraculous feeding of the Israelites in the wilderness. He'll mention such specific historical details as the three and a half years that the famine lasted in the time of Elijah. Christ made clear that these events took place just as the Old Testament records them. In no recorded utterance of Jesus, in no written or spoken statement of the apostles, is there any suggestion of any inaccuracy, historic, scientific, theological or whatever, in the Old Testament record. The Sadducees were the skeptics of our Lord's day, denied that the resurrection of the dead. Jesus yielded them no ground. He showed them from God's recorded affirmation to Moses at the burning bush that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were still living four centuries after their deaths. We find that the apostles also, as well as Christ, quite unembarrassedly talking about Adam and Eve as real people, historical Adam, historical Eve. And if we are, as evangelicals saying, that we're going to pattern our attitudes after Christ's own attitude, then it is undoubtedly the case that we have to accept the whole of Scripture. I think it was Spurgeon. I may be wrong. I'll probably be corrected if I am. I think it was Spurgeon who made the point that there's always the temptation to defend Christian doctrine at the points that it's not being attacked at and to yield at the very point at which the, the attack is coming. And we've got to be careful to make sure that we are not yielding at the very point that's under dispute nowadays because that is where oh, matters begin to slip. And it's on things like the historicity of Adam and Noah and Jonah and the miracles of the Old Testament and the historical details that the skeptics bring their challenge. And it's at those very points that we have to remain firm as evangelicals in our commitment to the total trustworthiness of Scripture. Not just in uh, the, the total trustworthiness of Scripture regarding what it's wanting to speak about, but the absolute trustworthiness of Scripture in all that it says.